Welcome to Testimonies, where people who share similar life experiences and challenges come together to talk about them. Testimonies is brought to you by Native Voice One. I'm your host, Meg Luther Lindholm. Today's program focuses on a problem that got a lot of attention in the upper Midwest in the summer of 2017. That's when a young indigenous woman went to visit a neighbor in her building and then mysteriously vanished. Her name was Savannah LaFontaine Greywind. She was eight months pregnant when she disappeared. After an extensive search involving hundreds of people, her body was found in the Red River near Fargo. Fortunately, her baby daughter survived and she's healthy. Savannah's disappearance and death were not unique. Thousands of indigenous women are listed as missing by the FBI, and the homicide rate for indigenous women is among the highest across all racial and ethnic categories. But this isn't new news within tribal communities. Rather, it's an ongoing problem that has deep roots, ones that have sprouted a new trail of tears across the United States. My three guests have an intimate connection to the problem of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls, both through their work and in their personal lives. But first, I want to take a moment to caution you that this discussion may not be one that you want your children to hear. So let's get started by meeting our three guests. Hi, my name is Chelsea Snyder, and I'm an enrolled member of the MHA Nation that's located on the Fort Berthold Reservation here in North Dakota. I'm also a mother to a, an amazing seven-year-old human being who I'm raising to be an empowered, intelligent, indigenous woman. And I'm also the author of Lauren's Law, the first anti-human trafficking law in Indian country in U.S. history. And I just want to say thank you for having us today. And thank you for discussing this actual real visceral issue that we face, not just as Native Americans, but as a whole in the United States. Don? Hello, my name is uh, Dr. Donald Warren. I'm a member of the Oglala Lakota tribe from Pine Ridge, South Dakota. I'm a family physician and also have training in public health, and I serve as the chair of the Department of Public Health at North Dakota State University. And at NDSU, we offer the only Master of Public Health program in the nation that has an American Indian focus. So our students can actually get a master's degree in American Indian health. And certainly one of the big public health challenges that we face and that does not get enough attention is missing and murdered indigenous women. So this is a part of our curriculum uh, to make sure that our students understand the policy issues as well as the public health implications when we have so many of our young women who are missing or murdered. So uh, I agree with Chelsea. Thank you so much for putting some attention on this very important issue. Whitney? My name is Whitney Fear. I'm a, also a member of the Ogallala Lakota Nation, the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota. I'm a mom of twins. I'm a nurse, a graduate student, and I currently work with the homeless community in Fargo, Moorhead metro region, which is comprised of a large number of extremely vulnerable individuals, namely Native American women. All right, so let's take a moment to go over the ground rules for the program. I'm going to say a word or phrase connected to the problem of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. You'll each have some time to jot down your thoughts. Then each of you will share what comes to mind from your own knowledge and experience. So to get started, the first phrase I want you to think about is how each of you personally relate to the problem of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. We'll be back to hear what each of you has to say. 
All right, so we're back to our program, Testimonies, and you've each had a little time to write down your thoughts in relation to how you each personally relate to the problem of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. So Chelsea, do you want to go first and tell us what you have to say? Um, I relate to the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls because I am an Indigenous woman, because I am a raising an Indigenous woman, because this is an issue that does not get talked about openly and honestly. And I'm also involved because I understand the jurisdictional issues between local, state, federal, and tribal agencies that create um, a lack of sharing and a lack of knowledge just because of my prior work. But the main reason I'm involved with the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women is because I am one, my daughter is one, and our people throughout the United States deserve better. Okay, thanks. Don, do you want to go next? Sure, and uh, I do appreciate the um, the idea to include men in this discussion. And when I think about our traditional roles as men, certainly in Lakota, but many other tribes, our role is to be a protector, not a perpetrator. And unfortunately, when we do see violence against women, when we see human trafficking, it's usually the men who are the perpetrators of, of this type of violence. So for me personally, just thinking about how I was raised in a, a family with very traditional Lakota people who understand the traditional roles of men in the family and how we are supposed to be protecting our families, protecting our children, protecting our women. Uh, when I see what happens in our communities, it's heartbreaking because it's really against our cultural belief systems, it's against our traditional belief systems. But in addition to that, we also have non-Indian perpetrators. And when I think about trafficking, for example, and I think about missing um, and murdered indigenous women, it also makes me think about the boarding school experiences. And in many ways, that was childhood trafficking uh, that was going on for hundreds of years in this country, as well as in Canada and other indigenous populations. And in, in these cases, our children, uh, boys and girls, were taken away to uh, boarding schools, in some cases many thousands of, of miles away, and they were victims of uh, abuse, sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, neglect, and many of those children died. And then also personally, my own mother is a boarding school survivor. Uh, she's nearly 80 years old, still doesn't like to talk about what happened in boarding schools, and I think she never will. And just to be connected uh, one generation away from that type of experience is a very personal issue for me. But I also have a seven-year-old daughter, and I don't find the current circumstances of bad policy and bad data uh, for this particular issue acceptable. So I also feel a personal role in my, my work in public health and addressing data and policy to make sure that for the next generation we do a better job than what's happened in previous generations. Whitney? Well, I have the, kind of the same point of view as Chelsea. I'm a woman and I have a daughter, I have nieces. Um, you know, the collectivism that is the, the tribal way of thinking is that all women and girls are my relatives, they're life bringers, they're sacred. Um, they're my sisters, they're my uh, mothers, grandmothers, so for us, we take it as seriously as if our own daughter was missing or our own sister was missing because there's no separation of that um, like there is an, an individualistic society, which is kind of mainstream America. 
Um, we believe in honoring others, um, all living things, in order to honor ourselves, which leads to a fulfillment and happiness in our lives, and it's the way to live. Um, I'm a strong believer in teaching those traditional ideas to my own children and making sure they stay alive, to making sure my nieces know those things. Because for many years, like with the boarding schools and inability to practice religious ceremonies, things like that, we got told our way of doing things was so bad and um, was harming us. But getting away from those things is actually what harmed us, I think, and put us at such risk. Because when you practice true you know, collectivism and honoring each other, there is no room for things like owning other human beings and using other human beings for your own gain. Um, the people who do that, the perpetrators of these crimes, are not honoring um, themselves because they don't honor value anything else. Thank you. The next prompt is search for the missing. What comes to mind when you think of the term or the phrase search for the missing? We'll let you jot down your thoughts for a little bit, and we'll come back to hear what you have to say. This is Testimonies. I'm Meg Luther Lindholm. Testimonies. We're discussing the topic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. My three guests are Chelsea Snyder, Dr. Donald Warren, and Whitney Fear. All three are enrolled members of tribal nations in North and South Dakota. They are all professionals in health and education, and all three are parents. Okay, the prompt or phrase that I asked each of you to think about is search for the missing. So who would like to go first on this one? Whitney, do you want to take a shot at it? Yeah, I can go first on this one. So uh, immediately what comes to mind for me was the the search for Savannah Greywind. Um, I remember the family being on TV and saying that they had gotten a tip that Savannah may be at Buffalo State Park out by Glendon, which is the community that I live in. And um, I looked at my husband as we're watching the news, and I said, I have to go. And he said, I know. be safe, let me know um, what happens. And I, I get out there and I, I couldn't believe, no, there's no help. You know, there's there's no one. There's a, a half a dozen people. And I thought for, that's all she's worth? You know, she's not, man, I, w- I was so astounded. I couldn't believe that there wasn't more help. You know, I, I Everybody went out there to look. You know, I I saw people still trudging around at at quarter after nine o'clock, you know. And from what I understand, the only reason that law enforcement showed up was to make sure everyone left the park by closing time. But I not one time saw them looking. And I'm not against law enforcement. My brother worked in law enforcement on the reservation for almost 10 years. And my grandfather was a highway patrolman and sheriff for 45 years. Um, But... You know, I, I thought, I'm walking around and I'm thinking, how do you force the family into that choice that they have to be the ones looking? Because if this is going to turn tragic, why should someone have to find their own daughter like that? And what what if, you know, in those cases where community members, like even with Olivia Lone Bear and, and Emily Bluebird and on Pine Ridge, what if they were still alive and they needed help? How are you supposed to 
get them out of these remote areas when the volunteers you have are, are not trained to do that. I mean, we the state, you know, could mount this huge National Guard response for a protest in western North Dakota, but couldn't, you know, spare a few people to look for a, a woman who is seven months pregnant and missing. So, you know, for me, what comes to mind is, you know, we have to advocate for ourselves, and, and often we're using our own personal resources to help these families help each other because we, I think we inherently know if this, if I'm ever in this situation, they'll come and they'll help me too. Um, and you hope that that's not going to be the case. But when it just repeats itself and keeps happening, keeps happening, keeps happening, it's hard to imagine that you're not at risk somehow. Thank you. Don, do you want to go next? Sure. When I think about the search for the missing, um, I think about our systems and, of course, uh, from a public health perspective, we have a lack of resources, a lack of attention, and a lack of data. When I think about the resources, quite often uh, the argument we'll hear is that it is not a crime to be missing. But we're not talking about just the the, the person who's missing. They're, they're in danger if we don't know where they are, and there is certainly public health and potential for violent death as a result uh, of, of being missing. We don't know what the circumstances are. So there, this isn't treated as the significant issue that it really is, and we certainly don't see resources put toward it. In Canada, they do a little bit better job uh, than we do here in the United States. And of course, as Indigenous people, we did not draw the line between U.S. and Canada. And uh, being here in North Dakota, we have relatives on both sides of that um, invisible border. But uh, in Canada, they're, they're at least taking a look at this. They have missing and murdered Aboriginal women national programming. We don't have the same type of uh, federal focus. And when I think about the attention that's not given to this, there's almost a dehumanizing of Indigenous women. Um, and I think Indigenous women have always been thought of as a commodity by this government and by the people who live here. And even looking at some of the racism coming out of our own president when he refers to Senator Warren and calling her Pocahontas, you know, she's one of our first missing murdered Indigenous women was Pocahontas. She was only 21 years old when she died. Um, so there's just been a longstanding challenge of getting the resources and attention focused on this. The search for the missing to me is a, it's a public health issue, but it's also a, a, an issue related to dehumanizing Indigenous peoples. Thank you. Okay, Chelsea? Well, when you say search for the missing, the first thing that pops into my mind and the first thing I want to talk about is that the only reason that Savannah Greywind is getting the attention and this situation is getting the attention is because of the horrific circumstances of her death. It wasn't the search for her. It was how she died. And that's a big issue. When we talk about searching for our missing and murdered Indigenous women, let's take a look at what's going on with Olivia Lone Bear. I'm glad that this is getting attention and people are, are becoming involved. But the problem is not in the involvement later. It's in the first 48 hours. We know that in the first 48 hours, if we don't find our missing and murdered and, or our missing women and our people, anybody, regardless of race, the likelihood of them surviving is almost non-existent. So in those first 48 hours, where is the training for our law enforcement on the reservations? Where is the support from our state law enforcement and our federal law enforcement within those first 48 hours? When we're talking about Olivia, when we're talking about Savannah, what we're talking about are our community members. Um, there are non-Indigenous people. 
that are involved in the search, and there are non-Indigenous people out there that care. But who we need to care and who needs to train and who needs to offer that support and that infrastructure to actually make the impact for these community members who are going out and doing what law enforcement is supposed to do in the first 48 hours, we need those law enforcement officers there. We need people there to help us search for them so we can help them search for our missing women. And... Um, Let's, let's again go back to Olivia on Fort Berthold. Law enforcement, both tribal, federal, and state, are not working together in the ways that they can to actually find her. The, the information was not shared. The community itself had to organize searches. We have community members with drones. We have community members on the ground doing searches on a regular basis. Where is our law enforcement and why is that not the priority? Because our community members aren't funded by the federal government. Our community members aren't funded back home by the, the, the Bakken oil uh, money that the state is receiving. So where is that support? We want to be a part of the solution. We are the solution. And we need the federal government, the state government, the local government, and people regardless of ethnic identity or cultural background to understand that Native people, whether on the reservation or off the reservation, deserve the same support and attention that every other demographic gets in the same light, in the same financial funding, and in the same way that we compassionately care as a nation, about non-Indigenous people going missing, we need that same care. We need that same passion for our people as well. You're listening to Testimonies. We're discussing the topic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls with my three guests, Whitney Fear, Dr. Donald Warren, and Chelsea Snyder. So um, thank you all. And we'll move on to the next prompt, which is sexual assault. You have a couple of minutes to jot down your thoughts, and we'll be back after a short break. back. We're discussing the topic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. My three guests are all enrolled members of tribal nations in North and South Dakota. In addition, Whitney Fear is a nurse in Fargo, Dr. Donald Warren chairs NDSU's Public Health Department, and Chelsea Snyder is an educator and an author. All three are parents. The prompt that you have all been given to think about and now talk about is sexual assault. Chelsea, do you want to go first? Absolutely. Um, when you say I was given a prompt to think about sexual assault, um, I don't need a prompt. I am constantly thinking about sexual assault. Um, it is constantly in the back of, of my mind and the things that I do and the things that I teach my daughter. As a Native American woman, I'm four times more likely to be raped. My daughter is four times more likely to be raped than any other demographic here in the United States. Three out of five of us will have experienced sexual assault before the age of 18, and those are the reported statistics. So imagine what is not being reported. 
Um, when I think about sexual assault specifically relating to Indigenous peoples, I think about how we got to these statistics, how we are so prone, and the the decolonization and the the government mandated um, stripping of who we are as people have have allowed have allowed us or have forced us into a situation where we are not emotionally comfortable talking about these things. It's stigmatized. It's embarrassing. We face shame as people because of these issues. But the, the historic and generational trauma that Native Americans have experienced have laid the foundation for these statistics and for these rates. And when I think about sexual assault, number one, we need to destigmatize it. It is not a bad thing to have been a survivor of sexual assault. I myself am a survivor of sexual assault, and I'm not embarrassed to say that because we as Native people need to stop hiding what we're ashamed of, and we need to take that shame away from it. We need to realize where that comes from and to actually address it to affect measurable change. And the communities that surround us, non-Indigenous communities, they need to realize that we do experience the same things. When we talk about Black Lives Matter, all lives matter, Native lives matter. We experience these things at a higher rate than anybody else. But because we are such a small percent of the population, 0.9%, when we used to be 100%, our focus is not on just sexual assault. The main focus of Native American people and for myself right now is to ensure our continuing survival. We are just trying to survive. And so I think that the sexual assault portion of it, addressing it and finding solutions to end this goes way beyond just acknowledging it and just speaking it out loud. Thank you. Donald? When we think about sexual assault in, in American Indian and other indigenous populations, it's more than just the one event. There's huge implications for population health. And I've seen the numbers anywhere between a third and 60% of American Indian women will be raped in their lifetime, and that's unacceptable. That's obviously just horrible statistics. And again, those are the reported incidents, so we don't know the full extent of the challenge. And we also know that uh, the majority of perpetrators are non-Indian, and we have to recognize that there's other challenges involved in terms of even jurisdiction. How can we even prosecute uh, the perpetrators? So there's all kinds of significant public health implications and policy implications. So one of the challenges that we've faced over the last couple of decades, people might be familiar with SORNA. That's the Sex Offender Reporting and Notification Act, and that's why in the newspaper we'll get notified if there's a sex offender moving into our neighborhood. When that law was written, it was not written with tribes in mind. So actually, sex offenders could move to tribal communities, and there was no notification. So we have to recognize that this is a, a big issue, even including issues related to tribal sovereignty and how policies are developed and implemented, because that puts our people at risk. If a sex offender can move to a reservation community and not have to notify anyone, that's a problem. So we have seen some improvements in that area, but we still have the vast majority of tribes where we still have no notification when a sex offender moves into the community. So we can see perpetrators uh, re uh, committing these terrible acts on a whole new generation, a new population of people. The other thing that I think about is how this has an impact on our children as well. And when we're talking about missing and murdered Indigenous women, 
And when we talk also about sexual assault, we have to recognize it's not just happening to adult women. This is happening to children as well. And one of the things that we see when we have higher rates of sexual abuse against children, for the, the, the victims, we see higher rates of suicide, a lot of unresolved trauma and related illnesses and early death and other types of health challenges. But even for the, the boys who are assaulted, quite often they become perpetrators themselves because that's what they've learned. So this is a much bigger issue than even looking at the, the violence against women. This is really a, a human issue for our entire population because the, the perpetrators create more perpetrators as, as those children get older. And certainly the unresolved trauma related to sexual assault is leading to other health issues, including higher rates of substance abuse, violence, and suicide. Thank you. Whitney? So when I, I think about sexual assault, I think about just how common it is um, where I grew up at uh, among the friends that I had. Uh, and I can't think of actually a, a single um, event, including mine in later adulthood, that was reported to law enforcement. And every single one of those events I can think of were involved a white, wealthy perpetrator. The problem, you know, in our community is when we um, encounter racism in that way is that it, there's no justice and there's, you know, nothing that kind of comes of it. And when, you know, it happens your whole life, so that's on, the only example you ever have is that if somebody victimizes you and they're white or they're powerful, you might as well not even bother reporting it to law enforcement because it's not going to go anywhere or it's going to be this good old boy's rhetoric. As young as I can remember, my mom was always telling me to not get close to vans, to not get close to pickups. Um, when we would go to Rapid City as a neighboring community, she would hold my hand so tight, you know, I thought that it was going to fall off. And you could tell she was just terrified all the time of taking my brother and I to other communities because she didn't know who was around Um she would tell this um, myself and my my female cousin to, you know, not do things like don't get a don't get that ice cream cone. Men will see you eating it and they'll think that they'll think bad things about you. You can't do that because they they'll be looking for that and they'll expect something from you. They'll want something from you. Um, and I you know I think how t you know in my you know I didn't really get taught anything different than that people are waiting to essentially you know, take you or or do something horrible to you. But I think from my, if I try to get my mom's perspective on that, I can't think of anything more horrifying as a mother than having to think my kid can't even eat a popsicle in public because I'm afraid that, you know, this guy is going to think gross things about her and then try to find her or something. And for me, that got reinforced for me when I when I was 12 years old. I was at the racetrack in Rapid City with my, my uncle, raced cars, and his girlfriend's daughter and I were best friends. She was also 12. And we went to go get pop and a snack from the, you know, the area where they have that. And there was this group of, of white guys that were probably in their 40s and the, I, I mean, I can't even bring myself to say the sexual stuff they were saying to us, but, you know, they they were commenting on our clothing, and they actually ended up chasing us back to my my um, my uncle's girlfriend's car, and thank God she could, my 
her daughter could get the door open fast enough and shut us in. And they actually sat outside of that car for 40 minutes yelling those things at us and trying to open the door. And I was, and I was terrified. And, you know, we never told my uncle and her mom about that because what I thought is my uncle will go find them. And because he knows there's no justice in this if we report this to law enforcement, nothing's going to happen to them. But, you know, he would probably take it upon himself to um, do something about it, and then he would end up jail in jail because it would be another lunatic Native guy that attacks some, you know, helpless white guys that were just minding their own business and having a good time. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, technically no crime occurred, luckily. I mean, I, I, I still, you know... Um, think about it quite frequently is what if they would have gotten the door open or what they did was a crime Whitney yeah that was a crime a crime occurred yeah um so all those things my mom told me when I was a little girl it came true right I mean I couldn't even wear shorts in public because it became a thing I was then a an object for these men you know that were 30 or 40 years older than me and as horrible you know um and my, you know, my uncle's girlfriend at the time, you know, she had enforced those same things in her daughter. So for her, for her daughter too, my friend, that was enforced. But yes, you do have to worry about everything all the time because it'll happen. It's not when, if it will happen, it was when and what the severity will be. You're listening to Testimonies. We're discussing the topic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls with my three guests, Whitney Fear, Donald Warren, and Chelsea Snyder. So we're going to move on. The next prompt we're going to do is seeking justice. And I'll give you a little bit of time to jot down your thoughts about that. And we'll come back and hear what you have to say. Okay, we're back. You're listening to Testimonies. We're talking about the topic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls with my three guests, Whitney Fear, Donald Warren, and Chelsea Snyder. And the last prompt that I gave you was seeking justice. Chelsea, do you want to tackle that one? Um, when I when you say seeking justice, um, what I hear and what I see is, and what I feel is seeking solutions. In order to have justice, we need to have solutions to the problems that we face as Indigenous people. 
we look at 52% of the cases uh, that meet the Major Crimes Act, the assault with a deadly weapon, rape, sexual assault, murder, um, on reservations. 52% of the cases are turned down by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, which has jurisdiction in those situations. So um, as I said before, I, I did author Lauren's Law so that there could be jurisdictional resolutions for victims and survivors of human trafficking on Fort Berthold. Because again, 52% of the major crimes where the, the federal government has jurisdiction over those crimes don't get taken or accepted and turned down. Um, there's not even a court case or an investigation because they choose not to accept those cases. So when we talk about seeking justice, what we need to do are seek solutions, find actual solutions to these problems, and then take action. That is seeking justice, finding ways as individuals, um, what are you good at? What can you do best? Are you a speaker? Are you a writer? Do you work in public policy? Do you work with the homeless community? What is your passion? And then apply that to finding these solutions. So when we talk about seeking justice, that goes hand in hand with seeking solutions and taking action to make those solutions happen. Thank you. Don? Yeah, I, I agree. There's a lot of um, policy-related challenges in seeking and achieving justice for American Indians. And as we've mentioned, there's an increased number of non-American Indian perpetrators against American Indian women. And then the tribes have no criminal jurisdiction over the non-Indian people. So then the tribes have to rely on the federal government for prosecution. There's a high rate of uh, the U.S. Attorney's offices declining to take these cases. And there's a lot of irony in this particular question because we have a Department of Justice, right? And the Violence Against Women Act was reauthorized in 2013. And that did allow for tribes to at least prosecute in limited cases some non Indian members of the community, but they had to have a close connection to the community. And in order to get that passed, of course, there was a lot of opposition back in 2013. And ironically enough, the uh, Department of Justice is led by Jeff Sessions, who voted against the Violence Against Women Act. Mm -hmm. And when we look at this particular administration, within the Department of Justice, there's an Office on Violence Against Women. President Trump has not appointed a director of that department. When I look at justice, it's also a systemic issue. And when we have political leaders who honestly, by their actions, are either against increasing enforcement or they simply don't care based on their actions. I don't care about their words. Let's look at their actions. Let's look at how they voted and look at whether or not they've even appointed people to lead these important offices. And I think what we see is systemically, we are not promoting justice for American Indian women, particularly in this administration and particularly with this Department of Justice. Thank you. Whitney? I think I'll just, you know, I definitely feel the same. The laws and policies currently don't work, um, which in in my experience right now as a professional is doing nothing but reinforcing that it's okay. Um, in the last year, there was a sting uh, where law enforcement posed as a underage girl um, looking to exchange sex for money or drugs. And there was an individual who's, who's actually a business owner in Fargo, and his business has not suffered whatsoever even after his, or after his arrest. And he was arrested because he, he continued to offer money to this law enforcement officer, 
posing as an underage girl, um, even after they said that I'm underage. And that individual got one day in jail. That was his sentence, one day in jail. I would love to look at the drug cases that they that have been prosecuted in the last year in North Dakota and see where anyone who's even been caught with, you know, a, a brick of marijuana has gotten a day in jail. They're probably sitting in Bismarck or in or in um, New England prison for that. So what that says to these people who who sell human beings is that you will get less punishment for selling a human being than you will for selling drugs. So what is more profitable? Which is less risk to sell and to market? Um, because it's cheaper too, right? You can only sell a bag of heroin one time. You can sell a 16-year-old girl hundreds of times before she gets pregnant and gets an STD that's that's lethal, is killed by a John or manages to get away from you. But, you know, you you even potentially have a lifetime of profit from this person if you can get them to do what you want them to do through force and not have any repercussions for it. I, I mean, that's a highly profitable. Imagine there's nothing on shelves today, right, that we could get a lifetime out of use out, out of, you know, not even a car. And I mean... So it, it's highly profitable, it's low risk, and we continue to perpetuate that idea that it's okay by not doing, you know, making sure that people have justice. I mean, imagine if that would have been an actual 16-year-old girl and this person would have only gotten a day in jail. Meg, can I add one more thing? Mm-hmm. Um, my question to all the listeners and to everybody here is, how can we seek justice as Indigenous people, when those who do seek justice through the traditional routes, through the legal system, very rarely receive it. So we need to empower our people to speak out, to help make these changes, to empower each other, to find justice, not just through the legal system, but within ourselves and within our community. If we can't get it from the federal government, from our tribal governments, from our jurisdictions, how do we give it to ourselves? And that's part of finding the solution. But how, again, how can we seek justice when we know that the majority of the time, over half of the time, our cases aren't even going to be looked at? You're listening uh, to Testimonies. We're discussing the topic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. I want to move on to the next pair of words I'd like you all to think about, and that is daughters and sons. So I'll give you a little bit of time to jot down your thoughts. This is Testimonies. I'm Meg Luther Lindholm. You're listening to Testimonies. We're discussing the topic of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls with my three guests, Whitney Fear, Donald Warren, and Chelsea Snyder. The last pair of words I wanted you each to think about is daughters and sons. Chelsea, do you want to take that one first? When you say daughters and sons, the first thing I think about is fear. 
I'm afraid for our children. I am afraid because of the statistical destiny that they have been handed. So when I'm afraid, what I do is how I combat fear is I educate and I prepare. So I'm educating my daughter. I'm educating anybody that I can talk to um, through the after-school programs that I've worked with. I talk with the kids there regardless of cultural identity, both men and women, our young men and women. And I educate them about these actual issues. With my daughter personally, I prepare her every day. Every day we have discussions about sexual assault, about what it means to be an indigenous woman, about how she can make sure, okay, if you're walking down the street and a, and a car approaches you, which direction should you go if you feel uncomfortable? What, what should you do if this person says, hey, come here? What should you do in every situation, constantly preparing her and constantly educating myself, those around me, regardless of cultural identity, about our daughters and our children? And, our, and, and their future, because their future is not just for indigenous people. It is for the entire United States. It is for everybody here. So when you say daughters and sons, number one, I'm afraid. But more importantly, I am dedicated to empowering people to first understand why I'm afraid, why my daughter is afraid, why my nephews and, and, and my relatives are afraid the reasons behind that fear, and then how to accept and prepare for the situations that they are most likely going to have to face and overcome in their life. Okay. Don? I'm glad that the prompt is daughters and sons and not just daughters, because when we think about violence against women, it's not just a women's issue. The vast majority of perpetrators are men. I'm very fortunate to uh, be from a family that's very connected culturally, and we participate in ceremony every year, um, both on uh, in my side, which is Lakota, but also my wife is uh, Pueblo and Pawnee. And when I look at the the traditional uh, belief systems and the ceremonies, there's a lot of similarity in terms of looking at the role of a father. And when my children go to ceremony and see how much sacrifice is put into that, we explain to them why we do this, why there's so much sacrifice and so much effort uh, put into traditional ceremony. That is because we are praying for the health of our people and that our men do have a role in ensuring that we maintain our strength culturally, but also that we protect our people. So a lot of this occurs through embracing traditional ceremony and our children get to see it. It's not just words. They get to experience it. When we go back home to Pine Ridge and participate in the traditional ceremonies, they're learning why we are doing it. It's not just a process. There's meaning behind it. And I think that's one strength that we can leverage. It's a part of our resiliency as indigenous peoples is that our culture is powerful. Our culture is strong and our culture is about equity and ensuring that everyone can live in a good way. And that, that's, for me and for my family, that's really a big part of the solution, is to ensure that we have that cultural connectedness and really understand the role of men as protectors. Thank you. Whitney? So I, you know, I think 
the same as Chelsea, I have nieces, and I, I think of them as daughters, and that's my role as well as their auntie, is to be that kind of second mom or, you know, an additional mother and, and help to teach them. But for my own kids, um, I have twins, they're four and a half, and they they couldn't be more different in appearance, and, and that worries me often because the statistically the more vulnerable out of the two is my daughter, and she is the one that looks native. So my daughter is has darker skin, she has dark hair, and looks like she's straight out of Pine Ridge. And uh, my son is really light-skinned and has blonde hair and, you know, looks like a typical uh, little Minnesota boy. So... When I talk to my kids, I do use traditional values, and I think for my daughter is a very headstrong individual. You know, we talk about she. You know, actually thinking about Elizabeth Warren earlier, she actually has a dress that says the she. Nevertheless, she persisted. Hold on it, <laughs> and because I talked to her about that, what if some boys told you you didn't couldn't talk and they didn't want you to talk anymore, and she said, "Well, I would just keep talking. I had something to say." And I said, well, that's good. I mean, if you have something to say and you are not being rude or you're not hurting anybody's feelings, then you should say it. Um, they try to reinforce in her knowing her worth beyond her appearance. Um, you know, she's such a cute little girl, but I want her to know, too, she's smart. She's capable. She has pretty big goals for a four-and-a-half-year-old. <laughs> um, and then my son, you know... Um, Teaching him that masculinity doesn't mean um, compromising emotional expression, that it's okay to cry, it's okay to be upset about things. Um, you're not demasculinating yourself by doing things that you like. He loves to have his toenails painted whenever my daughter has her toenails painted by their daycare provider. And I'm not going to tell him he can't do it. I don't think it makes it's going to make him less of a boy or man to have painted toenails. Um, it's something he likes. It's a fun thing for him to do as someone who's his caregiver and his sister both. Um, so I I think just reinforcing, you know, that he doesn't have to be um, a certain way to be a man. You know, when we go, we, we're a big outdoor family. And, you know, when we go places, uh, he helped me gather some traditional medicines this summer and we were he and I were talking a lot about being gentle and not pulling things out of the you know pulling things out of the earth with force and only taking what you need and giving thanks for the things that you take and um, if something doesn't seem to want to you know leave that place to leave it alone because that if if that's if something is telling you no, you don't force it to happen. Um, so kind of starting the conversation, too, about consent that you don't, just like you don't have to give someone a hug if you don't want to, they don't have to give you one either. And it's not necessarily that they're trying to be mean to you or hurt your feelings. If they don't feel like giving you a hug, that's okay. And, you know, there's other ways to express how you feel about somebody. Um, you can just tell them, you know, if you know someone who doesn't want to give you a hug, you can just tell them, I like you and you're my, I, I like that you're my friend. And say that instead, and that says the same thing you want to say with a hug. So, um, but I do feel like my, my son is going, even though my daughter is statistically the most vulnerable, my son is going to be in an environment where 
um, the other kids that look like him, the other boys that look like him are going to be taught that, you know, painting your toenails is a girl thing, crying is a girl thing, um, you know, having those moments of gentleness with things that are, you know, small and but mean, you know, a lot are not to be valued, you know, that he's going to have to try to sort out that. And I think that's really hard for boys. It's hard to, you know, not feel like you're fitting the mold of a man in today's society, particularly for our indigenous men, because what, how um, traditionally, you know, how our men behave is a stark difference than how mainstream men in America behave. Okay, well, thank you, Whitney, um, for giving us the last word on what I'm pretty sure will not be the end of this conversation, um, but it's a conversation I'm really glad we had here today. This wasn't an easy discussion to have, so I want to thank my three guests, Chelsea Snyder, Dr. Donald Warren, and Whitney Fear, for having the conversation. And I wish you all the very best as you continue tackling this very vexing problem. So that's it for today's show. My thanks to program engineer and editor Eric Dethridge and radio director Bill Thomas. Today's program was funded in part with a grant from the North Dakota Humanities Council. I'm Meg Luther Lindholm. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.